Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. You're listening to The Private Collector. Hang on to your hats. Things are about to get weird. The Origins of a Man The Lord God Almighty himself cast out all foul, contemptuous, and unrepentant sinners of filth. Yes, he did. In his glorious righteousness, he flung them all screaming into the bottomless pit in days gone by, and he will rise again from the hallowed halls of eternity, wearing the crown of thorns of glory upon his brow, to do so in the days foretold to come. You mark my words on that. Oh, you mark my words. The dusty old pile of rags bellowed from the gutter just off Bourbon Street on Toulouse. Nobody paid any mind to this, being used to it as they were, and probably nobody who noticed either that it was nothing at all like a natural man buried in those rags, that he had anything but eternity on his mind. A fine party of two strolled through the quarter arm in arm, drawing glances of both desire and turpitude from some, while others turned quickly away. When the old pile of rags got wind of these two drawing close, it stumbled to its feet and hightailed it into an alley, disappearing clean from sight. And I do mean disappearing clean from sight. The woman, a stunning beauty of the Creole variety, swathed in yards of Parisian taffeta and dusky rose velvet, smiled in surprise as she looked down at the fine hand-tooled boots on her feet, laced up to the knee beneath the luxurious frock of the latest 1840s cut, fresh off a recent boat from Martinique. Her companion, a gentleman of great stature and severe pallor that some would have foolishly taken for a Mardi Gras grandee, Skeletal and clad in the finest bespoke funeral garbs anyone's money could buy, smiled with pleasure at the girl on his arm. But he keenly sensed the nearness of that pile of rags. He brought his fair companion to this very time and place so she could look upon this thing of wonder and add some to her learning. A fortnight ago around dawn when the night lets go of her darkest mysteries but the sun has yet to rise. A breeze blew in off the old Mississippi, and a clutter of leaves and dust got up into one of those spin whirlies no more than five or six inches high and made its way down the wooden sidewalks and finally came to rest off Bourbon Street where it gathered up more than just leaves. At some point, an icy gust came down from up north someplace carrying more than dust and something else, and before long, the pile now full of rags and other things heaved and shuddered and started wheezing. Miss Fontenot, who was now passing by just then, swore she'd seen eyes in there peeking out at her and winking. But she was real old. 
and her people just hurried her on toward Jesus' loving arms tabernacle of true faith, glory, and light church. And she went along without too much fuss. Looking back on that mess of leaves only the one time, pulling her shawl around her bony shoulders and making the sign of the Lord upon the cross. Not too much later, Miss Brandy Chanel came waltzing down by parading the faded glory of her mama's wedding curtains done up to vaguely resemble the latest from Paris, cinched and tucked, flounced and girdled, showing off way more than enough cleavage for the job at hand. A ghastly smear of her own lip rouge lay across her ample bosom from some time the night before, and make no mistake, Miss Mirandy was not headed towards the Lord's house on this fine spring morning. More than full of herself as usual and still flushed with the sweet wings of the green fairy on her lips, Mirandy sneered when the pile of rags rose up, calling her to atone for her many sins and depredations of the flesh and commanding the harlot to fall to her knees before the Savior and beg his mercy. Not a believer in such things, Mirandy just laughed, taking a swift kick at the heaving pile, letting loose a luga spittle right in the middle of it, and that's when she went down the heel of her satin shoe getting caught up in the leaves and dust and rags and the unrelenting screed of hellfire. It was three days before the shredded remains and some old curtains done up like the latest out of Paris was found in the mud up on Toulouse not far from Bourbon Street, along with a pair of busted-up satin shoes and a frightful lot of dried blood. No sign of Miss Miranda Chanel was ever seen again. Things was gathering, as they say. Like a hurricane off the Florida panhandle about to blow in uninvited to raise some hell. One who'd come to know the truth behind all this deep down in her bones, and bred there by her great-great-great-grandmammy Marie Laveau was Miss Martine Lacroix. She of the secret middle name known only to herself and her patron, the Baron Somdi himself. But this was 1842, and Miss LaCroix would not lay eyes on this her city, nor draw her first breath on the day of her birth until damn near 90 years on. So when Miss LaCroix herself in the flesh and a beautiful full-grown woman turned up on Bourbon Street arm-in-arm with her benefactor, the librarian, one fine spring morning here in this the year of our Lord, 1842, it was itself truly a thing of awe a mystery worthy of a deep and mighty pondering. Now things were in the air, like a juggle man's hand at the church rodeo. The pile of rags and leaves that was spouting the Lord's hellfire had grown itself into something like the form of a man that could cause a world to hurt, as the late Miss Mirandy Chanel could duly testify. Now, don't get me wrong. When I say the late Miss Mirandy Chanel, I don't mean she was dead, not exactly. The pile of rags had dragged itself and Mirandy deep into the bayou where it fermented a bit and cooked itself in the hot Louisiana sun. It took over an old dilapidated shack, heading towards what end maybe it didn't even rightly know. And Miss Mirandy, she was transformed into a thing of great wonder, if not exactly beauty. Away from the prying eyes of New Orleans' finest and everybody else, the thing of rags and leaves grew thick inside itself and drew something akin to its first breath in the course of things. 
Anybody passing that old shack in the dead of the night would have had heard terrible wails of hideous pain and screams of monstrous joy and glory as the bayou moon grinned down its evil eye upon the scene. The thing had yet to take a name for itself. That was still to come. But it was already bursting with spit and bile and had worked up a mighty fearsome hunger. At sunrise on the seventh day, the thing emerged whole from the shack and shambled down to the water where it pulled Miss Miranda Chanel out of the water. She'd become a thing all pink and slithery, no arms or legs and just two big black eyes glaring back at the thing with no name in mindless terror. As a mercy, this didn't go on too long. The thing crushed her in its arms as a gaping hole opened up in the middle of it and took Miranda's whole eel-like head off in one bite. And then he tossed the rest of her aside for later. Squatting at the water's edge, it looked around, its head slowly moving back and forth as it took stock of things and surveyed its new territory. As the thing stared out over the swamp, a small wooden flatbed drifted over the still waters with nothing but a 13-year-old kid working the pole. His basket trap sunk and his eye keen for any movement in the silt below lunch or gators. He had to know if either was coming his way. Now, Ethan Taverack was a big boy for any age, which is why his daddy let him go off that morning in his only boat to scratch up the family vittles. So when Ethan felt his boat rocking back and forth and about to tip him headlong into the drink, he thought it was some old gator looking for lunch, so he yanked out his big knife out of his boot and bit down on the handle and prepared for the worse, and the worse it surely come. Ethan Taverack never expected a hideous, filthy human hand to reach up out of the brown, slimy water and drag him down into the darkness where his lungs soon filled up with foul water and his own blood. That wasn't the end of Ethan by a long shot. The next morning, after the man-looking thing had had its way with the boy, there wasn't anything left of him but a thing all pink and slithery with two big black mindless eyes thrashing around in the water with nothing but a mockery of life. Miss Miranda Chanel had still been among the living, the pair would have made a right handsome couple in the devil's new paradise of hell on earth to come. The thing that looked and thought more like a man with each passing day built up a water corral to hold young Ethan. There was big plans for him. He'd be doing his part to help bring on a whole new order of things to the bayou and well beyond. A few days after that, when the thing had come far enough along to have a brain that worked and could cipher up, he did a sign saying, Behold, God's very own mystery. Just five cents a look-see. Tell all your friends. Come one, come all. And he nailed that sign to a tree by the water pen where what used to be young Ethan Taverack swam back and forth all day, bashing himself against the pen and praying for his own demise and the Lord's sweet forgiveness for his sins, though they be many and severe. In time, the thing looked enough like a man and thought enough like one to pass among them as one of their own. So he figured he'd best have a proper name, as they did. After some due consideration, he came to the conclusion that Amadie Philippe was a right fine name and had a certain ring to it. She, of the secret middle name known only to herself and her patron, the Baron Samdi himself. Martine Lacroix comes screaming into this world on April 1, 1930. She was nobody's fool. 
Even as a tyke, she always got her own way, even though she was never a spoilt child. She never met her daddy, though. Not because he died or run off, nothing like that. It was a matter of design by her mama, Ada Shirley Johnson. She'd searched long and hard for the right daddy to help her make her kids, the twins, Martine and Maurice. When she found him, she took him to her bed as soon as she knew her moon was right for such things. Next morning, she'd fixed him a big breakfast, then tossed him into the street with nothing but a thermos full of hot coffee and a goodbye kiss. You see, Jean Rondel Lafitte Lacroix was the great-grandson of the legendary Marie Laveau, the grand dame of voodoo and a bloodline that Ada Shirley wanted her kids to have, something she could pass on when she left this world for the great by-and-by. Jean Rondel hadn't amounted to much, never made use of that blood of his himself, having no interest in the like and so it was just going to waste. But he was a damn fine, good-looking man. By passing all this on to his kin, it would endure and make itself known to the world. As a child, Martine had been a real sharp one. Quiet and good in school, knew her ciphers before anybody else, read everything she could get her hands on before the other kids even knew their ABCs. She asked so many damn questions, folks started crossing the street to escape her pestering ways. Maurice, he was real smart too, no doubt about that, but he was also a prankster, always messing with everybody for a laugh and just being a big pain in the backside. Thing was, though, like his sister born three minutes before him, he was so doggone cute, well, nobody minded much. When they grew up, they were both real lookers. Martine, the great beauty of her day, according to most, with Maurice not far behind her for a boy, which didn't surprise anybody. When later on, as a young man, just as many menfolk came calling on Maurice as they did Martine. But we'll save Maurice's story, a real humdinger, for another time. It was during all this growing up that Martine and Maurice fell in with Doug Cartwright and his pal Frank Enfield, two boys from down the road they just naturally ran with from the youngest age, all four of them taking their spiritual tutelage at Ada Shirley's knee. When Martine was grown and the full recipient of her great-great-grandmammy's prodigious gifts, it was this latter that got the Baron Samdi nosing around. He took her under his wing and carried on her education into matters mysterious and arcane where others couldn't set foot. Ada Shirley had left a blank spot between the Martine part of the girl's name and the Lacroix part. When the Baron had come, he filled that spot with a name all his own and made her forget it once he put it on her except when she was in one of her trances. This allowed Miss Martine Lacroix to blossom into the fine mambo her mama had taken such great but not unpleasant measures to ensure. For some time, everything went along just fine. Martine became the priestess most extraordinaire in New Orleans while running a fine bar and dance club called Martine's Place in the Quarter. She also helped her baby brother, three minutes the younger, on the finer points of his career when he opened his own place not far from hers called Maurice's Spells, Potions, Herbs, and Whatnots, a complete and fully stocked apothecary and dry goods establishment ready and eager to meet all the needs of the well-heeled practitioner of the South's finest arcane arts and sciences. Things continued on as they do. But the time came when Frank and Doug set off for New York City to start their own occult detective agency, swearing they'd come back to the quarter and set up shop once they'd made their fortunes. That set Martine into quite a tailspin. 
She was already mighty sweet on Frank and had been since they was tykes and she'd always just assumed. For his part, Frank loved her back, but young men sometimes got to sow their wild oats for they settled down to hearth and home. And all this noise left Martine in the crosshairs between heartbroken and mad as hell. But then, something completely unexpected came to pass. It took a while before all the facts trickled in, but the Enfield and Cartwright Detective Agency was no more. Doug was presumed dead, or at the very least gone AWOL under the most dire and irregular circumstances, and Frank was locked up in some place called Bellevue. He got out eventually and went to recoup his faculties and his strength up in Hudson, New York, under the watchful eye of a fella called the Librarian, who gave Frank a job, and well, as they say, the rest is history. This set Martine off on a whole new tirade that Frank had just set up shop somewhere else without so much as a buy your leave or a kiss my ass sunshine, swearing all the time that they was an item, true blue and forever and all that noise. But the thing is, it wasn't that she was just missing her man, though she was true enough. It was something more, something bigger. She had found her rightful place in New Orleans with the bare insomnia, and all was right as rain. But Martine got an itch in her boot and had to face the truth. She was just plain jealous. Not that Frank was making time with some floozy up in Hudson. She knew her own charms well enough to know that, that notion was bunk. No, she was jealous on account of she wanted to know what was holding her man's attention on the esoteric side of things so hard he couldn't break himself free and come home. Mostly, though, she wanted to know who the hell this librarian cat was and what he could show her that she wasn't getting already in the big easy. Maybe expand her far horizons a bit more into the beyond. As said before, Miss Martine Lacroix always got her way anytime she set her sights on something. So it was no surprise when she pretty pleased Frank into taking her to Paris to retrieve a piece of haunted music that was wreaking bloody havoc on that fair city. Martine speaking French and knowing the ways of those folk, Frank had agreed right away. It wasn't much of a surprise when later Martine was introduced to this librarian and charmed him into taking her under his wing for some additional learning. Murder and Mayhem in the Bayou Amadie Philippe had finally come into his own, whatever that was and he'd set off on his grand campaign, building the shack up to accommodate his expanding needs and filling the water corral with more and more slithery pink things. The pitiful creatures swam about, mewling and bashing themselves against their confines in distress. Some died early on, refusing to eat, and the others ate up them that died. Amadie kept at least 15 or 20 of the things pinned up, and there was usually a line down to the road of folks wanting to take that advertised look-see, not believing what they was told about the creatures till they'd seen them with their own eyes. Once word was out, folks came a-running out to Amadie's place, some of them more than a few times, and always happy to toss their shiny nickel into the jar. This soon provided Amadie with two important things a cash pot that allowed him to fix the place up even more, building on more and more rooms and finishing it off with a juju all his own. Soon the place was nothing short of a marble palace, rising out of the swamp mist with nobody bothering to ask the why nor the wherefore. 
The other thing was a growing horde of true believers eager to kneel to whatever nonsense Amadee set loose on them. Soon he had himself a regular congregation that saw him as a real old-time preacher, a miracle man with a whole pen of things not of this earth as proof of the truth of his gospel. Other things were also turning up out in the bayou, rotted bodies even the gators turned their noses up at, some human, some not. Whole stretches of water where the fish all died off or cleared out for cleaner pastures, and a thick silence where neither bird nor beast nor bug filled the air with song. The only sound was the chanting that rose up like tool fog to fill the silence of what came to be known as the dead bayou. Each night past midnight they started in, and not a bit of it sounded anything at all like the Lord's sweet hymns. Any local folks still in the vicinity at the time packed up and pulled out, setting up beggar camps if need be, just to be getting gone from the place and the whim-whams that gnawed at you just passing by there even full daylight. After some months of this passed by, generally unnoticed by the good folks of New Orleans society, high born and low, the great tabernacle in the bayou had become a thing of terrible awe. Standing all white and shiny like the underbelly of a dead gator, and not always fixed and solid like you'd naturally expect. There was by then better than a hundred true believers out there, and their number was growing by the day. As the rotten corpses swelled and burst in the hot sun and clogged the waterways, and the pens full of pink, eel-like things filled faster and faster as the things bred amongst themselves and then busted free and made their way into cleaner waters. Learnings by the Book For the Here and Now and All Times Yet to Come The librarian had come into 1842 New Orleans by the back gate. Through his own byways known only to him, and with that city's own finest yet to come, Miss Martine Lacroix on his arm. She had been promised a deeper look into things and a gander into the librarian's mysteries, something she'd been hankering after real bad. She also liked the idea she was getting something up on her man Frank while he was off gallivanting at one of the librarian's capers. As they meandered along Bourbon Street, Martine looked around. Not only was she dressed up and jingled down in 19th century finery, the city itself was robed in the bell epic of that century. Martine got the shivers of delight and knew she was in for some high learning and fine adventure, such as would make Frank squeal with envy. In all her years of juju making and magic working, she'd never dreamed that traveling through time was anything but a fool's raving. You approve, my dear? The librarian cooed as they walked through the door of Antoine's on St. Louis Street and were shown to his private table by a large window. Oh, my lordy, she cried, covering her mouth with her fan. I love Antoine's. But how? It looks so new. How can this be? What year is this? How do we come to be here? Tell me, she demanded, near breathless with excitement. The year is 1842, Mon Martin, the librarian <laughs> replied, laughing long and deep. Antoine's opened in 1840 and has been going strong ever since. That's over 115 years where we come from, you and I. The menu is only but slightly altered, as you will see. 
I believe you will be pleased. As they dined on escargot a la Bordelaise, potage alligator al chorie, a dish it was rumored the librarian himself had whispered into the chef's ear, and portiere de porc. Martine could barely contain herself, but she was not a child and wasn't going to act like a kid at her first church carnival. We just had a fine meal, the librarian said later as they drifted through the swamp on a small river raft. Now we must begin. There is much to see, and you, my dear girl, can only endure such wandering between the pages of the real such as this for a short time. The librarian began. The mists of the bayou swirled and eddied around them like tangled hair. Moist, cold eyes and dead fingers seeking to protect the secrets that lay deep within the swamp and the rotted earth beyond. The librarian's hand swept the skiff's oar deep into the foul waters as he plied a course straight into the corroded heart of the bayou. There is a most critical lesson for you here, mon Cherie. You will see what is possible for you. What is allowed and what is strictly forbidden as you venture beyond the natural confines of your birthplaces, even the Baron may not have taken you. The librarian explained. For this, he continued, his eyes darkening beneath his spectral gaze, you must understand the meaning of time and bow to his laws or suffer such wrath as even I will not be able to protect you from. Don't you play with me like this. It ain't right, she said sharply, turning to glare at him. You tell me right now, straight out, what I gotta know so I can get on doing what needs doing, she added through her teeth, jamming her finger into his chest and bristling with pride, enraged to be treated like a schoolgirl. Oh, I'll just get on with things on my own as I see fit. The librarian snorted and laughed, taking a step back wholly unused to such unrepentant familiarity directed toward his person, but amused all the same. The Baron said you could be a most petulant child at times. <laughs> the librarian roared with laughter, then went silent as he considered how to best say his piece. But he didn't do you justice, my dear, he added softly. Now, are you ready to proceed towards what I have brought you here to see? Martine nodded sharply, keeping her tongue as they walked up the banks of the swamp and headed for what was coming to be known as the God's Almighty Own House, to those who knelt within and greedily partook of its rites and sacraments. Before they left the swamp for what passed for dry land, Marine stopped short and cut loose a curse of rage and disbelief. She stood staring into the pen, with the slithery pink wonder that was Ethan Tavarak and others of his kind splashed around and tore their hide to shreds trying to break free. They ripped savagely into each other, and Martine thought it was a kind of mercy that in their frenzy they managed to kill each other. She stood there on the banks of that foul water, her arms slowly raising up on high, words spilling from her lips in a tongue the librarian didn't know but understood the meaning of to the quick. Martine's face grew dark and grave beyond her years, her eyes wild and clouded with hate. What are they? She hissed through clenched teeth, her lips curled back, knowing they were as unnatural as any swamp mammy or devil child. Without waiting for an answer and hearing none, 
She picked up a nearby stick and felt its weight in her hand and then closed her eyes. At first, her voice started off soft and low, like she was singing to attack at bedtime. And then it rose steadily, shrill and powerful with rage. The librarian looked on, nodding to himself and liking what he was seeing. Martine raised the stick over her head and roared a command that liked to bring down the heavens to its knees. She plunged the tip of the stick into the water like it was the sword of Damocles itself. Lightning shot down from the sky into the swamp, putting a speedy end to all the things in the pen. They all went quiet and turned belly up. Martine sang a prayer over them, said the Baron's name just once, then turned on her heels and joined the librarian. I don't suppose that's the worst of it, she growled. The look on his face told her what she needed to know. All right then, let's get on with it. Martine took the lead. Sensing the direction they was headed, she got a real bad feeling. Recognizing as she did some of the natural landmarks and the direction of the sun over their heads. The tingle of the dark, shining, prickling the hairs on the back of her neck made her shake out her fingertips like she did when she was headed into juju that didn't feel right. Wherever they was headed, it was hot. The librarian let her go and followed on, wanting her to find her own way where they was headed, wanting to see what she was capable of, knowing things could turn out real bad one way or the other, but things would turn out as they would. Miss Martine Lacroix would sink or swim in these proverbial dusky waters, and that's all there was to it. She wanted to learn what lay beyond her, so learned she would. Juju and Heck sorts out its own. There was no baby, no hand-holding in the librarian's world. Martine started sidewinding through the thick Spanish moss that flowed from the trees like curtains to keep out prying eyes of somebody's business. She moved slow and easy, but with a powerful step. Weaving back and forth along a trail she could only see in her mind, being pulled along as she was towards the densely clogged forest of cypress, the moss so heavy that the sunlight only fell in small patches on the ground before her. She didn't bother to look back to see if the librarian was behind her, and after a few minutes, she didn't care if he was or not. She was breathing low and steady the way the Baron taught her. Guard hexes up and her mind wide open, probing everything around her for what she knew and what she had no mind to ever know. She wasn't sure exactly what her nature was here in this unnatural timeline. Didn't know who or what could do her harm or if she could be trapped or even killed here. None of that was to her liking, but she had to know if what lay up ahead was what she suspected. The haint of the place was so familiar it washed over her like a foul breath. She heard a crack of twigs behind her as she stepped into the clearing. A great high mansion of shimmering white marble rose before her like a living thing, a gaping maw into another place where she had no mind to go. She turned and the librarian was there beside her. You knew. This is why you brought me here, she said flatly. Of course. I have made no mystery of my machinations, Martine, but I wanted you to find your way here on your own. He crooned, his voice like silk that wound around her like a pair of arms. Martine shuddered and stepped sideways away from him, a thing he noticed but said nothing. 
She fell away from him, resuming her sideways winding path toward the looming citadel, serpent trailing her way through the mud to the side of the house. Always the best place to enter an enemy lair, the Baron had always said. She pressed her fingertips against the marble and took in the feel of the place. Then she quickly smelled her fingers and vigorously rubbed her hands on her skirts as if wiping off a greasy, unseen smear. Easing along the side of the vile mansion, she was careful not to touch it again. Aside from the foul stench of the place, there was a mushy softness to the marble that made her gag. Like putrescent flesh left to rot, the surface of the mansion was warm, pliant, and pulsed softly with the beat of a malignant heart. She came to a small door that was open, and while she was not disposed to trust this unlikely piece of good fortune, she had no choice but to venture into the bowels of the place and to set eyes on what she knew was the foul truth of the matter, the very thing she was there to see. As Martine was about to step inside, she felt a hand on her shoulder. Spinning around, she saw the librarian, his fingers to his lips, shaking his head. He pointed inside, gesturing for her to move on ahead but to stay quiet. They made their way down a long, dark hill that pulsed with a menacing hot breath, and Martine's human instincts told her to run from this place. But she steadied herself and continued on. The hallway gave out into a series of larger rooms, and what she saw there made no sense. Here, people were dressed in the filthy, ragged finery of the 19th century New Orleans and in ragged dungarees, faded shirts, and the tattered raiments of the riffraff of her own time. They passed dozens of people who wandered by in a daze of madness or drugs or bad juju or the mix of it, but not a one of them even glanced at Martine and the librarian as they moved among them. They heard noises, too, coming from several smaller side rooms where people sat or wallowed in filth on the floor, their teeth tearing into the pink, fleshy bodies of what looked just like the slithery, sad remains of Ethan Tavarak and others like him who had come to the bayou looking for wonders untold and mysteries to behold and who'd surely found them. Out a window, Martine saw buckboards and half-starved horses alongside Model T's and even a brand new 1955 Ford Fairlane, all parked in the mud around the side of the house. It all made sense. Of course it did. There was no time here. It was 1842 and 1955 and everything between all somehow mixed up together. And she turned and looked at the librarian, but he remained silent pointing to a huge cavernous space up ahead. The tabernacle. The heart of this foul house of God Almighty. Hundreds of celebrants groveled on their faces in the muck oozing out of a dark oily pool in the center of the room. Above the pool, more than 50 feet, was a vast round opening to the dark star-filled sky. Out the windows, it was still daylight, though, and Martine took this as proof of her suspicions of the place. Ami de Philippe. This is his place. This is how he started up. He was never no natural man at all, was he? Indeed. Now do you see? Do you begin to understand the ways of time and how we must navigate it to suit our aims and learn what we must for our work? Yes. She growled through her teeth beginning to gather the strength of her ancestors and her daddy's mama, Marie Laveau, and the Baron Samdi, and most importantly, all her own she brought to the mix that nobody knew nothing about but her. 
She threw her hands into the air and was about to bring down death and destruction on the place when she felt the hand on her shoulder again and she angrily shrugged it off. She gathered all her powers and was about to strike when the librarian grabbed both her shoulders and spun her around and shook her. Without thinking as a feral reflex, Martine's open palm shot out toward the librarian's face. He grabbed her wrist firmly and stopped her cold and she stumbled backwards, staring at him in shock and confusion. What are you doing? We gotta shut all this business down now. Get rid of this. Send it back where it came from. We gotta call down all goodness at the home and everything else we know. She said, gasping for breath and having no idea what he was up to. No! The librarian roared, his voice echoing in his darkest command voice. A frightful thing Frank Enfield himself had never heard in all his years of doing the librarian's work. You cannot strike in this place. Everything is connected here, my dear. You can do nothing but watch and observe and learn. Everything here is learnings by the book. Everywhere else, there's room to take measure and test oneself, but not here. The hair I can't, she roared. You can't tell me I can't work my work whenever I see fit. Like hell you can. She moved forward into the room, deeper into the thick, pulsing swarm of celebrants. Something splashed in the pool and the water sloshed over the sides, spreading algae and muck across the floor, along with what looked like tadpoles. The celebrants cried out and scrambled to the foul matter and began lapping it up. Before you strike, Martine, look closely upon the faces here. Who do you see? There are many who are familiar to you here. Martine wandered to the crowd, not wanting to believe it was true. My mama's sister? No. She screamed, the tears now running from her eyes. Yes, your mother's sister. She hearkened to the call of greed, as did so many others, and when it was too late, she could no longer resist. Go on, who else do you see? Martine cried out and almost slid to the floor. My daddy? I'd know his face anywhere from pictures my mama keeps hidden. No. Not all who came here wished to answer the call. Your daddy, after your mama threw him out, he didn't disappear, no ma'am. The librarian said softly, joining her by the pool while overhead the stars gathered into a dark, swirling mass. Your daddy and some of his friends came out here hoping to do what you want to do right now, but they were killed for their efforts. No proof nor legacy ever came down of their great sacrifice. But look, who else can you see? Martine looked and saw other faces she knew, and then her gaze fell on the form of her man, Frank Enfield gazing up at the hole in the ceiling as the stars came down and he stood his ground to do battle. It was that time a year ago or better when Frank had come here to destroy the place, but she had been wrong. This place was not destroyed. The form of Amadie Philippe stood at his altar, hurling vile praise and command toward the stars as that swarming maelstrom poured through the hole in the ceiling, its great star-headed mass and the body of a hideous slug. If we destroy this place now, then all those lives won't be wasted, lost in vain, for no damn good reason. Martine yelled, her voice thick with tears, 
full of rage and something else. No. I brought you here to show you time and how it permeates us, how it may be used to learn and see the truth of hidden things. All that is, is forever now. You destroy this place in the crossroads of time, then time here collapses, and you destroy everyone in it. Your daddy will never be, Frank will never be, and you, my dear girl, will never be. I fear I committed a very grave error in bringing you here. Alas, I so seldom make even the slightest errors in judgment. But I misjudged you too quickly, perhaps. He said sadly. Just maybe you did. You've stayed my hand against my will, but I ask you this. She said through her teeth, glowering at him. What do we learn our magics for if not to stay the hand of evil wherever we find it? Why have I worked so hard all these years just to make truth potions and hex lights to amuse curious fools to brew up a spell to make somebody love you? To stand at a crossroads and see death himself coming and going making his rounds? To make people look at me. Oh, look at Martin. She's a big time mumbo. She can do anything. She knows everything. But she can't even ward off evil. Unless it's in her own backyard in time, she can't do nothing to make anything right before it's turned up wrong. That's what you're saying to me? She demanded, trembling with unbelief. She looked up to see the huge, star-headed thing peering down into the room as something else rose up 20 feet or more from the pool to greet it, and then all hell broke loose. And somewhere she heard Frank yelling to somebody, Was it Doug? His old partner, Doug Cartwright? Then there was the crazy flapping mess of black wings overhead. The librarian again put his hand on her shoulder to draw her out of that place, but she spun on her heel and glared at him. Grabbing his wrist and shoving his hand away, she looked him in the eye and growled a slow, guttural, No! Martine turned sideways, put her head down, clenched her fist, and envisioned a very different place than this, and then she was gone. Though the librarian had not given her leave or passage to depart, and he had no damn idea where she'd got off to. Well, that's certainly something different, said the librarian to himself, dissolving his egress into that place and locking it down tight as a drum with his own seal. Then he returned to the year 1955, to his subterranean lair in the quiet little town of Hudson, New York where he would consider what was to be done about Miss Martine Lacroix, she of the middle name known only to the Baron Samdi and to herself.